Have you go and turn in God's Word with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 22, beginning in 34. Now, Lord, open Your Word to us that we may hear it, that we may perceive what You have for us here with our minds, with our hearts, with our soul, that we may obey You with all of our strength and might. Conform us to Your Word. Lord, here, Your Word is truth, as Jesus says. So don't let us waver from it. It is that which gives instruction for how how we must believe in order to be saved, to be Yours. How we must live as those who have become Yours. That in all things You may receive the glory. And so we submit ourselves to your truth now for Christ's sake. Amen. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, we read, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to testing. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. So the question is, how do we live out this faith of ours in the midst of all the demands of living in this world. What principles, what truths has God given us? Is it simply a matter of finding and obeying the commandments? And which commands are we talking about? The Bible is filled with many commands in various contexts. You see, this was the question that troubled the minds of many religious people in Jesus' day. How are we to take the truths that God has given us and and live them out in the midst of this day-to-day world? Or as this man asked Jesus specifically, what is the great commandment of the law? What should be my priority as I head out the door each morning and encounter various difficulties and, for that matter, difficult people? Now, if you look closely, this man's question clearly was not asked in complete sincerity. We're told that it happened in the middle of the debate Jesus was having with the religious leaders in Jerusalem going all the way back to chapter 21, verse 23. But when He had silenced the Sadducees who asked this dumb question about the resurrection, the Pharisees decide it was their time to give it another go. So one of them brings up this question, verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, say it wasn't asked in sincerity, because it tells us very plainly they were trying to test him, they were were trying to trip him up. But even so, the answer that Jesus gives is monumental, because it goes right to the heart of what it means for us to live out our faith in the midst of this confused and broken, lost world. And so this morning, I want us to to look at this great command of Jesus 
and think about how we must apply it in living our lives here and now in a world that no longer shares even the most basic biblical view of things. And so, first of all, of all the commands that God has given, which one matters most? And Jesus says, so here's our first point, the first and most important command in life is to love God supremely. Verse 37, And He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So it all starts here, Jesus says. Before you do anything else, before you get out of bed in the morning or brush your teeth or put on your shoes, set your heart to love God and put Him first in everything you do. This, by the way, is why I like to begin my day with what we've traditionally called a quiet time or devotional time. Not to check off the box that I did it because I want to get my face before the face of God. I want to get my ears open to the words of God. I want to have my heart set for obedience to God. Because this is the heart commitment that orients the life of the Christian to God in everything. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That is the heart of this Christian life. Putting God first in all things. Setting your heart and your mind and your desires on Him. Now of course, that thought was not original to Jesus. The question is, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And so Jesus quotes from the law, Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you want to turn there or you can you can listen as I read it here shortly, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Uh, that set of verses is the very heart not only of Deuteronomy, it's the heart of the Old Testament faith. It was called the Shema from the first Hebrew word in verse 4, which every pious Jew knew by heart because it was repeated twice daily as a matter of devotion. Shema Israel, Elohei Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord, or the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Every practicing Jew understood that this passage was the most basic summary of their faith. Put God first in all things and love Him with all you got. So just notice some things about this primary command. First of all, at the very heart then of a biblical faith stands this command to love God. Uh, Calvin marveled at this. He said, Jesus could have said that our first duty is to serve the Lord or to obey the Lord or to fear the Lord or to bow to the Lord. So why does He say, love the Lord? And it's because, frankly, no one would be able to serve the Lord or obey God or even fear God apart from a heart that was changed by God's grace to begin to love God and to love Him supremely. And that is what takes place at conversion, isn't it? That, that old heart of stone uh, that was cold and indifferent to God and, and, and lit up with its own things, that cold, indifferent heart is awakened by God's grace and begins to beat with life in a sincere love for God. That's, that's what takes place at conversion. It's what God promised in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. 
said, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. He'll take that old dead heart and cut away its deadness. He'll circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And so the Christian faith is not just a matter of obeying rules from God, but of getting a new heart for God. And then second, we see that that new heart for God that comes at conversion brings a new commitment to live all of life for God. Notice again what he says in verse 37. He says, you shall love the Lord your God. Notice the totality with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. I summarize that as love the Lord with all you got. Because really he's not making distinctions here. Uh, between all of these things he lists, you know, as if loving God with your whole heart was one thing over here, completely different from loving Him with your soul or loving Him with your mind. There's all kinds of, of overlap here, all kinds of integration. In fact, the original quote in Deuteronomy, you notice, said, with all your might. Jesus says, with all of your mind. And then Mark in his gospel, uh, brings all four of them together. Mark 12, verse 30, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, there's not a contradiction between those because they're all saying the same thing. Love the Lord with all you got. We're, we're called to live a life of putting God first in all things, in all ways, as we love Him, mind, heart, soul, body, with, with, with everything we've got, seeking to put Him first, seeking to, to glorify Him in, in all the things we do. We live with our eyes focused on Him, our ears open to hear from Him, our hearts beating with a willingness to obey Him. Which is, by the way, what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus says, come, follow me. And Well, how did Jesus live His life? John 14, verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And so third, this, this love that we have for God is what then leads us into a life of obedience to God. What does it mean to love God with all you got? Well, it means that your heart desires, your, your mind seeks, you, you, your whole being drives to obey Him in all that you do. For, for this is what love brings. There's this tight connection, in fact, throughout the Old Testament between loving God and obeying Him. They're, they're never at odds. They always go together. Deuteronomy 11.22 Be careful to do all this commandment that I've commanded you to do. Loving the Lord your God, walking in all of His ways, holding fast to Him. These are the things that define obedience. Joshua 22, verse 5, he says, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Okay, Joshua, meaning what? To love the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways and to keep His commandments and to cling to Him and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. And then, of course, Jesus sums it all up when He says in the New Testament, John 14, verse 15, If you love Me, how's He finish that sentence? You'll obey My commands. Love will impel you to a life of obedience. Love brings a willing and joyful obedience. 
Love doesn't lead us away from obedience. It leads us into the joyful application of it for the glory of God. And this is what love calls us to. Obedience to God's commands is what flows out of a heart that loves God. This is what conversion brings. Does that describe your heart this morning? Can you declare with the psalmist in Psalm 40 verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, for your law is written on my heart. Your law is in my heart. It's gotten hold of me. And the result is a life that delights to do your will. So for those who love God, living for God, walking in obedience to God, these become our first priority. That's what Jesus means in verse 38 when He says this is the great and first command. This is priority one. Everything for the Christian begins here with a heart made willing to obey. And so, dear one, get this wrong and everything else will go wrong. If you don't have this heart, get this heart. How? By going to Christ through faith. Confessing to Him your need of a new heart and trusting Him to give it to you. We see who He is. We see what He commands. We see our sin. We see Christ on the cross for our sin. We repent. We believe. And we say, Lord, give me that which my heart needs, which is a heart for your Father. But then notice that's not all that He says. It begins there, but it doesn't end there. The second command flows from the first he says, if we love God truly, then we must also love those made in the image of God. That's verse 39 and 40. He says, and a second command, he means a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And again, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, this time from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I love that little, I am the Lord. Meaning, this is not just a casual suggestion. This is essential Christian living. As Jesus put it, the second and most essential command of all, following hard on the heels of the first, is this, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't put a separation between these. It's it's simply not possible to love God with all you got and then turn around and refuse to love your neighbor made in God's image. That, in fact, would be a blatant contradiction. Uh, John points out that contradiction in 1 John 4.19 and 20. He says, We love because He first loved us. Love starts with Him, gets into us. So if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen, uh, whom he has seen, I'm sorry, he who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And, And so there's this connection between love for God and love for those made in the image of God. It begins with God, right? He loved us and gave Himself for us, so His kind of love now dwells within us. Uh, Romans 5, verse 5, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. His love comes to dwell within us, and then we must take that love that God has poured out into us and spread it around uh, to others. This is fundamental Basic Christianity, as you know already, 
First John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves with this love, he means, has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love with this love does not know God because God is love. Love stands at the very heart of the Christian faith. Love is the motive for all Christian behavior. That's what Jesus means in verse 40. On these two commandments depend or literally hang all the law and the prophets, like hanging a coat on a hook. All the commandments hang on one or the other of these two hooks. All our obedience to God's commands in Old and New Testament, every one of them hangs on one of these two hooks. It is either the outworking of love for God, but I'm not going to blaspheme God, I'm not going to turn my back on God and forsake God if I love Him. Or it's the outworking of love for neighbor. I'm not going to steal from you or lie against you or or try to sleep with your wife if I love you. And so hard on the heels of the central command to love God with all you've got comes the second command to love your neighbor as yourself. But you know what question comes next, right? Okay, so then who is my neighbor that I must love? Turn to Luke 10. You know this story surrounding the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. It's a different setting than the one we have in Matthew. Jesus taught the same truths in various times and places, and so the same themes would at times come up. And this is a a different scene as we pick up in Luke 10, verse 25. We're told that, Behold, a lawyer, so another one of these guys, stood up to put him to the test, saying... Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to them, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And this guy's pretty smart. He answers well. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, When who is my neighbor? You see what's happening, right? Love my neighbor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what what the Bible says. But who exactly would that be? Surely not that guy over there. In fact, many rabbis taught something along those lines. Uh, The rabbis taught that neighbor simply meant those nearest to you, right? Uh, Not just spatially, as in down the street, but those near to you politically and nationally and religiously. Uh, Those fellow Israelites who who share our common commitments and are part of our, our covenant community, right? Them I must love. But everybody else, you know, those pagans, the Romans, the Samaritans, well, they're not a part of our little circle. I can despise them. I don't have to love them, surely. And you get a whiff for that in something Jesus says in Matthew 5.43 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, where had they heard that? Well, they heard it from these rabbis. And so, for the Jews, this command to love was limited to those like me. Those who stand in agreement with me. Um, then I must love, but, but everybody else, well, well, they're on their own. I don't owe them a thing, especially not my enemies. But how does Jesus answer? Well, you know the story of the Good Samaritan. Just don't ever forget it's, it's an answer to this question. So, well, who is my neighbor? Who, who do I need to have a real concern for? 
Picking up again, verse 29, but he answered, desiring to justify himself, and said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jericho, Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. Here's the good guy, right? A priest. Here's help. And he, when he saw him, passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, another good guy, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, minor key music in the background, this is always the bad guy in the Jewish story. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, medicine. Um, then he, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii out of his own pocket and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will pay when I get back. And now Jesus applies it. He says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the guy he's talking to is pretty sharp. He knows the answer. He said, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said, then you go and do likewise. Now what's Jesus' point? Who is my neighbor? Well, it's it's whoever God puts in my path with a need, right? And it might be someone very different from me. Jews and Samaritans were quite different. Ethnically, religiously, culturally, they were at odds over many things. It might be someone who disagrees with me theologically. Jews and Samaritans had an incompletely different theology in some very critical places. It could be someone who despises me. Uh, Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans gladly returned the favor. And yet Jesus says... That's who your neighbor is. That man, that woman, made in God's image, whom God puts in your path with a need that you can meet. Don't you know that was shocking to them? It just seemed to turn everything upside down. But then, even more shocking to them, back in Matthew 5, He'd said, don't even stop there. Matthew 5, verse 43 again, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Uh, Don't even Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Summation of the whole Son of the Mount. But the whole point is, this is the standard. This is what you're called to. Not only then must we love fellow image bearers with whom we disagree, we must even love those who are set against us. Why? Because the love we've got to share with them is not a human love we came up with. It's the very love of Christ Himself. And again, that's what has been poured out in our hearts according to Romans 5 verse 5, this supernatural love. We heard earlier, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The same passage in Romans goes on to say, Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He's talking about you and me. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone would dare to die. But God shows His love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. 
Verse 10 goes on to say, while we were His enemies, Christ came to redeem us. See, that's the kind of love Christ has plunged into our hearts and activated it in our lives for the sake of others. And dear church, it is only in understanding that that we will be empowered to love the way He loves. But because again, it starts with God. It doesn't start with ourselves. I must first see how He has loved me and let that love He has for me in Christ begin to fill me. And so as that love begins to then fill me, first and foremost, I'll love Him. I'll have a heart that will is willing to obey Him from love. But then out of that sense of obedience and love for Him, I'll begin to love them just as He commands me. Because it is that love working its way out in our actions that the Bible says is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, Romans 13, verse 9, For all the commands are summed up in this one word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Want to walk in faithfulness to God? There it is. Galatians 5, 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So who am I to love? Whoever God puts in my path. How am I to love them with the same love with which God has loved me? Now, now practically speaking, though, what does that mean? Well, it means I must love them just as I love myself. Matthew twenty-two thirty-eight, quoting Leviticus. By the way, as yourself, love them as you love yourself doesn't mean you start with self-love. That's that crazy stuff that came out of the self-esteem movement of the 1980s and 90s, right? Look inside yourself. Get a good warm hug and love yourself. And oh, until you do that, you can... No, no, no. He assumes that you already have a regard for yourself. Even if I say to you, do you like yourself? Not very much. You still have a regard for yourself, right? Your natural impulse is to take care of your needs when they arise. By the way, you're here. You're breathing. You had supper. You fed yourself. You clothed yourself. You combed your hair. You feed and clothe yourself. And so what he means is, in the same way that you care for yourself and your basic needs when they arise, now go do the same for others when their needs arise. Right? And that brings us into this third thing. Then we must choose to love our neighbors in an intentional, purposeful, Christ-centered way for the glory of God. Now that seems easy enough, doesn't it? When we're talking about nice neighbors... People who agree with us, people who like us, people whose yard signs say the kinds of things we can give a thumbs up to. It's really easy to love like a Pharisee. What about those people we don't agree with? Or who certainly don't agree with us and maybe they're a little bit in our face. Who might even despise you for things you believe because of God's Word. Can you love like a Samaritan? See, that's much harder. So what about people in the LGBTQ part of the culture whose lives are oriented in a way that you know runs contrary to the clear teaching of God's Word and who, who stand on things that, 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 that you believe are, are, are not ultimately uh, good at all, but the Bible would define as sin? What, what, what about them? Well, in our time left, let me suggest four things, and it's just opening the conversation. It's not going to be the final word on it about how we might seek to love those with whom we have profound disagreements on any number of issues. How are we supposed to love them? First thing, we love them with the same 
care that we would give to any other neighbor. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 says, Put on then. Notice the intentionality. Put on like you'd pull on a shirt in the morning. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In other words, don't begin by simply reacting against their particular sin. Begin by reaching out to them with compassion. By the way, this would apply to any sinner in your world, O redeemed sinner. Right? You see, think about it. If you just moved into a new neighborhood, for instance, or started a new job, what's what's the first thing you would need? I would assume that what you might need was, and, and might, might really appreciate, is simply a little basic human kindness, um, a warm greeting, an introduction. Helpfulness, if there's something, you know, I'm carrying this couch in, I'm going to help you. You know, that doesn't mean that you're condoning their sin at all. It means you're choosing to see them as more than just their sin. Uh, Paul Tripp said this very well, I think. He said, How horrible would it be if because of one single area of my sin you discounted me completely? You shunned me. You were horribly awkward and uncomfortable around me. You didn't know how to talk. You didn't know even what to say. You, d- you didn't treat me with the common sort of normal cultural kindness that you do everyone else. How weird and hurtful and threatening that would be. But that's what often happens with this particular issue. We lead with compassion. Who is this person? Get to know. What needs do they have? Look for that. How might God use me to meet those needs? Second, love them as fellow image bearers, not just representatives of their sin or their sexuality. I'm thinking immediately of Jesus' care for the woman caught in adultery, or the woman at the well, for that matter. Never at any point does He condone their sin, but neither did He simply identify them as nothing more than their sin. Again, I like the way Paul Tripp put this. He said, It is wrong to view any human being as a single sin on two legs because human beings are dramatically more complicated than that. He then goes on and says, So so I think it's wrong also to sort of name that person by their area of sin and just walk away. I mean, people may identify themselves in that way, but we can't just label them and say we're done. Well, well, he's a homosexual. Can't have anything to do with him. As if that is a summary statement of everything there is to know about that person. He says we don't do that with other sins. Well, he's just greed. I'm done with him. He's just a glutton. He's just pornography. As if that summary definition told me everything I need to know about this person's life. And I could wash my hands of them. And if we do that, if we just write someone off because of this or that particular sin, we we seem to imply that our own particular sins are somehow less than offensive to God. That our sins, they deserve to be forgiven. Not theirs. That their particular sins put them in a class all by themselves, beyond all hope, making them people that I am free to despise. Third, love them with the love of Christ, which is redemptive and truly seeks their good. First Timothy chapter 1. 
15 and 16 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And so my hope for them, as I would hope for any sinner, is that they would come to know Christ. And I want them to be able to see something of Christ in me. And so that process begins the moment we meet. I want my life to reflect the grace and kindness and patience of Christ. And part of what that requires of me is that I take a genuine interest in them as persons, not just evangelistic projects. Because right? if we're not careful, that's what we can do. Right? It can feel that way. You know, just getting another notch in the old gospel gun belt, trying to steer every single con- conversation, every time, back to their need for repentance. You know, they say, hey, it's a great day. I say, yeah, it's a great day, but it's an even better day in heaven where you're not going. <laughs> Sound like something Don might say. Just kidding. <laughs> Or worse yet, the minute they show any resistance to the gospel, well, we're done with them, right? Write them off. They're too hard. You do understand, right? Very, very few people come to Christ the first time they hear the gospel. Well, we have people who have come up in this church hearing the gospel week after week. Some are children we dearly love, right? And they've not come to Christ. And we don't say, well, done with them. I'm not going to pray for him anymore. He says, I'm going to pray for him even more. I'm not going to love him anymore. Are you kidding me? That's the one I'm going to especially seek to love. Very few people come to Christ the first time they hear the gospel. Most come after years of being cared for and by someone who not only speaks the gospel to them, but also exhibits the gospel in their actions. Again, 1 Timothy. I just read Jesus that Jesus might display His perfect patience as an example to those uh, who were to believe in Him for eternal life. So there's patience. That there's building genuine relationships of of care and concern and in areas of common interest. Maybe it's playing pickleball with them week after week and just getting to know who they are through that or or, 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 or working on a community garden or, or, or some other project or helping them with their car or letting them help you because they're good at that. But it's taking a genuine interest in them as persons, practicing hospitality, opening your home and even your, your life. Yeah, but, but won't I have to explain that to my children? Yes, you will. And so explain it to your children. <laughs> Begin to show them how, 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 how the gospel truth must be held and it must be proclaimed with love. Many of you are familiar with Rosaria Butterfield. I recommend her books to you. She was a, a lesbian gender studies professor. Uh, who wrote some things in the paper and a bunch of people wrote really nasty things back to her except for one Presbyterian pastor and his wife who invited her over and began to love her and form a relationship with her and have her over and formed a friendship and now she was brought into the kingdom by that love and is, by the way, now herself the wife of a pastor um, and, and, and continues to serve the Lord very faithfully. Which then brings us to the fourth thing. We must love them 
with the truth. We must love them with gospel truth. Ephesians 4.15 says we must speak the truth in love. Because here's another temptation we face, especially today. We're tempted to do everything I've said up to this point, but then refuse ever to actually deal with the sin issue. Uh, To act like, well, maybe this particular sin just really isn't that big a deal. Maybe I can just overlook what the Bible says about homosexuality and just be more accepting of their lifestyle. Wouldn't that be the loving thing to do? That is what the world says, right? That love means simply accepting, no holds barred, everything anyone would claim for themselves, never making any moral judgments of any kind, never calling anything sin, certainly never challenging anyone about their deeply held beliefs. And yet the Bible tells us love demands much more than that. In fact, love demands the opposite of that. Dear Christian friend, it is... It is never loving to hide the consequences of sin from anyone. It might feel loving in the short term. It fits the world's very very sentimental view of love as as, as nothing but non-judgmental acceptance. But from a biblical point of view, in a world that God made, in a world that God will indeed judge, it is profoundly unloving to do that. I mean, answer me this. Think about this. How is it loving to leave someone in the dark about the consequences of their sin, especially when the Bible warns about that sin? And if what the Bible says is true about sin, it is a monster that will destroy every soul that clings to it. Ezekiel verse, Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 says, The soul who sins shall die. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. It doesn't just mean physical death, as I'm sure you're aware, but an eternal death, a death of everlasting condemnation under God's judgment forever. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, a word that very broadly means all sexual... all sexual activity outside of the covenant of one man, one woman married for life, anything beyond that counts as this sexual immorality. Sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second. Death. And no honest reading of Scripture can escape the fact that homosexuality is among those sins God says will bring that death. It's not the only one, to be sure. But it is one of them. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, uh, 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, there's that broad term again, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, actually two words that are very descriptive, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, Romans 1 and on we could go on that if we had time. And no, this is not the worst possible sin. You know what the worst possible sin is, right? It's that sin that keeps you from Christ. That's the worst possible sin. And all the other sins feed into that sin. But, but, but to hide that warning in order to spare someone's feelings is not an act of love if we never even try to tell them the truth. 
Or even worse, if we would assure them that, that God now accepts their sin, that it's no big deal, as so many are trying to do today. That is not love. That's condemning them. You're aiding and abetting Satan in his desire to deceive them. To not only refuse to warn someone of their sin, but even to condone such sins and call them holy, as many have done today, is the work of the deceiver. Uh, To declare peace, peace, where there is no peace, is to prepare people you claim to love for an eternity of destruction. Rosaria Butterfield, again, who was saved out of lesbianism, made that point when a fellow so-called evangelical had written something that basically said we we shouldn't name this sin. And so she, she made the point that had anyone told her that, that would have kept her from seeing her need for the gospel at all. And in fact, it would have confirmed her in her sin. She goes on to say, to be clear, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. I didn't swap out a lifestyle. I died to a life I loved. Conversion to Christ made me face the question squarely, did my lesbianism reflect who I am, which is what I believed in 1999, or did my lesbianism distort who I am through the fall of Adam? I learned through conversion that when something feels right and good and real and necessary but stands against God's Word, this reveals the particular way Adam's sin marks my own life. Our sin natures deceive us. Sin is deceptive. And that doesn't just mean out there somewhere. It is deceptive in the deep caverns of our own hearts. So she goes on to to plead, you cannot soften the news that you must die to self in order to have life in Christ. She goes on, there is no goodwill between the cross and the unconverted person. The cross is ruthless. Uh, To take up your cross means that you're going to die. As A.W. Tozier has said, to carry a cross means you are walking away and you are never coming back. The cross symbolizes what it means to die to self. We die so that we may be born again and through Jesus by repenting of our sin, even the unchosen ones, and putting our faith in Jesus, the author and finisher of our salvation, we may be saved. We can never treat what the Bible declares to be sin as if it were no big deal, not in ourselves and not in others. And so the call to love others with the Gospel means that we must be honest with them about their need and about the wages of sin. And not only their sins, but ours as well. Because we're not above them. We're not speaking down to them from some high holy place that we have attained for ourselves. We are fellow sinners who need a Savior for exactly the same reasons they do. Because the wages of sin is death and Christ alone has the power to bring life from death. And so we are seeking to tell them the truth and love, to call them to repentance from all sin, not just this sin, that they might flee to Christ. Isn't that what Jesus did with His great heart of love? Out of love, He came to the woman caught in adultery and He said to her, you're no longer condemned. Now go and sin no more. To the woman at the well, in love, He exposed her sins to her in a way that made her see them for what they were and then He revealed Himself as the Messiah for her salvation. When He healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, He he left that man with a warning. He said, See, you're well. Sin no more. 
that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus delights in saving sinners, but He doesn't leave us in our sins. Praise the Lord. He calls us out of them. Because sin is a monster. It deceives and twists the soul. It bends the mind and sickens the heart and the spirit. It, it, it always, always leads to death. So it is never loving to abandon sinners to their sin and leave them unwarned. And so we go back to where we began. Before we can love anyone, we must first and foremost, by the grace that He gives us, love God. And if we love God, we cannot dismiss or distort His Word, not even an iota of it. We cannot make claims that are contrary to His Word. We can't offer people comfort where His Word seeks to offer them conviction. To love as God loves, we must speak and act the truth in love, patiently, purposefully, with kindness and consistency, believing in the power of the Gospel to do what only the Gospel can do, change hardened hearts. And so I've opened this subject up this morning in a way that I hope might get us thinking about these things, talking about these things, praying about these things, looking into these things, because this is a subject I know we, we all are dealing with, many of us in our, home, our families, uh, extended families, say, hey, it's the holidays, right? And we must learn to love with patience and grace. And so we need God's help to do that, the help of His Word. We need Him to teach our hearts to love as He does and to teach our tongues to speak graciously as He does out of a genuine love for a neighbor, a relative, because our desire is the glory of His name and the salvation of every soul. And so let's pray. Father, let Your good Word ring in our ears that we are called by Your grace to love You with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, if I love You with my mind, I'm going to love Your Word. I'm going to be faithful to it. And because of that faithfulness to love our neighbor as ourselves, not only the kind and gentle neighbor next door, but also the difficult one. Maybe it has nothing to do with the subject at all. Maybe it's just a difficult guy, a difficult woman, a bitter person, an angry person. God, show us how to love that person with the love of Christ. How to serve them as You would call us to do. How to, how to be the Samaritan on the roadside in, in, in reaching out. But then, Lord, for those in the middle of what so many have called a culture war, we, we want to step aside from the war in our dealings with individuals that we might love them with the love of Christ, that we might be, if we're anything in the battle, corpsmen, right? the hospital, coming along and finding an enemy, a wounded enemy and loving them, binding their wounds, pouring in the oil of Your grace, the wine of Your love, seeking to be those used by You and just daring. Lord, love is not full of fear, but truth. Seeking to dare to love. And Lord, being willing if someone chooses to turn around and spit in our face, that we would turn the other cheek and love them. That we would learn what it means, God, to, to, to carry this out. And that's difficult. It's not an easy task that You've called us to, but it's an important one. Lord, that we would be known first and foremost as a people of love. Lord, that wouldn't it be wonderful, God, if people said, I don't agree, I don't agree with the thing that guy believes. I think he's wrong. But he loved me and my family and cared for them. And when we were sick, they, they offered help. 
Doesn't make sense to me. I wouldn't help people I disagree with so much, but these crazy people, they're going to love you even if they disagree with you. They're going to be faithful to tell you why. It's because Christ has changed their hearts. God, would you make us such a people? And even now as we here individually think of people we know, people we love, people we interact with, as we lift their names to you, as I hope we do an awful lot, we ask that you might show us how to demonstrate the genuine love of Christ, speaking the truth in love and desiring that you would work in their lives for their ultimate and eternal good for Christ's sake. Amen.